Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Hunt Lefty Podcast. I'm your host, Luke, here with the OG co-host, Perry Eisner. How's it going, Perry? Good, man. Back in the saddle. Kind of kind of feels like old times. Yeah, it does. Stoked to have you back in, covering down for Carter as he migrates down from, from Canada. But uh, we're really excited about our guest today. We've talked talked about it a while back and finally got our schedules linked up. And we've got uh, Jason, Jason the Butcher. How, how's it going? Good, good. Yeah, doing pretty good. Just getting ready to go on another trip to, I think I'm going to Fort Campbell Friday. Awesome. I used to be at station at Fort Campbell. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's beautifully hot and muggy and miserable. And yeah, you know, last time I was there, I had like 20 tick bites on my legs and found out I had Lyme's disease. So, oh, wow. I, I definitely got eaten up by ticks out there, but uh, I never, never got Lyme's luckily. But that's yeah. uh. It's a. I love that part of the country. I actually, still have two houses there, and like to go back and visit. Middle Tennessee is pretty awesome. It's beautiful. I'm just not a. I'm not a hot and humid kind of weather person. Like I would live there in the wintertime, no problem. But in the summertime, I just melt into a little ball of goo and I'd cry the whole time. Yeah, I can empathize with empathize with that. I've grown up all around the southeast right now i'm in colorado physically but i live in louisiana um my family and we're kind of split right now so louisiana is miserable <laughs> it's oh, my yeah. hell yeah I'm last time out. i was there when was i i was there years ago for a cooking deal and i was just like how do you people live in this <laughs> it's crazy and you, you talk to like locals and you're like are you used to this and they're like no it still sucks for us and i've lived here my whole life <laughs> <laughs> yeah are you, uh, you're working out with fifth group, I'm guessing at Campbell. Yeah. Yeah. I'm working out with fifth group and then I come back and I got two seven, five Rangers and then the one seventy third out of Italy is coming out right after they are. So I'm pretty back to back from this Friday all the way to the end of August. Hell yeah. Well, that's, that's a great little preview to what we'll get into here in a little bit, but let's just kind of roll it back and just kind of give everybody little bit about yourself, your background, how you came up in the outdoors and kind of what led you to where you are, you know, right now. Yeah. My, so my family's all from like Chicago and the suburbs. And I guess when I was three, they decided they wanted to all be Josie Wales or some crap. My dad and my uncles and my grandfather. Hell yeah. And then it turned into freaking little house on the prairie bullshit. We all lived in, I think there was 10 of us or whatever the number was living in one house. And originally, I think we lived in Black Forest for like a month or something until we found a place. But I remember um, we grew up just north of Woodland Park, which is just west of Colorado Springs there. We grew up about six miles north of there um, by a local lake called Manitou Lake. And yeah, it was like the freaking Waltons or some crap going on. It was my brother, my mom, me and my brother, my mom, my dad. My three cousins, my great uncle, my great aunt, my grandfather, my uncle. Like it was everybody just did, and literally they all wore the round Josie Wales freaking hats and all that shit. It was freaking hilarious. Um, but yeah, we had a nice little ranch. And then, you know, was, everybody kind of grew apart and went their own way. You know, we stayed in Woodland. Uh, so I've been there since 76 when I was three. Um, preschool, high school, all that. And that whole time we just grew up like hunting for our own meat. And we, you know, we had a cow. My first experience with the cow was, I think I was like five or six years old. And I had my old cow named Smokey and they were supposed to have, and I remember this vividly. 
sitting in the car with my mom. Smokey was supposed to be down, skinned, gutted, hung, split, all that. Oh no, here comes Jason from, you know, first grade or preschool or uh, kindergarten or whatever. My dad shooting Smokey in the face right in front of me. <laughs> and my mom, you know, you could just imagine my mom going, oh my gosh, here we go. And I'm like, Smokey! Just crying my tears out. And they're like, yeah, you'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who cares? Get over it, kid. But yeah, so we grew up like hunting, fishing, doing outdoorsy stuff, playing Rambo because, you know, I'm, I grew up in that era of Rambo and all that kind of stuff. Um, and not that we were any good at it as kids, but as you get older, you kind of progress and develop your own ways. And that was kind of butchery, too, for me. My uh, my dad, my brother, my uncles, everybody, we'd get something and they just cut hunks of meat off like most hunters do and be like that's all burger yeah we got a few steaks and the rest is stew meat that that type of butchery but i was always fascinated with like the muscle structures like how do i get that weird to me it was a weird thing and so as i got older and you know i'd go hunting on my own and this that and the other and then after my teen years into my young adult years, I kind of developed my own style of butchering when I, when I would put something down and it just kind of morphed from there, but I was always interested in cooking. Um, I did, I had a couple, you know, food restaurant jobs in high school. I did construction in the summer, part-time in the winter. So that's kind of where my cooking came from. And my mom was a cook, you know, and my grandfather. So they would teach me things. I was always intrigued by it. I always liked to cook and I always liked to butcher animals. And, uh, yeah, one thing led to another, I, you know, grew up in a construction family, figured I'd be a contractor and ended up going to, um, law enforcement Academy, working at the local sheriff's office for a while. And then from there I went to Kosovo just doing, you know, being a stupid security guy walking around looking stupid. And then <laughs> ended up breaking my heel bone and tearing all the, all the um, fascia material on the bottom of my foot, like just ripped it up. Had I think they said a six or an eight millimeter tear in my Achilles where it attaches to your, to the bone. So that put me out of commission for like a year. And after I got through all that, I was like, all right, I'm going to go back to law enforcement. I'm going to start applying everybody was on like a hiring freeze went to El Paso did a bunch of testing and they sent me a letter sorry we're on a hiring freeze I'm like Denver County had some weird rule of three how they hire it was they they picked three names and then not pick three names that kind of thing so in the meantime a friend of mine she's a Navy vet and she was like hey my boyfriend does landscape we'll just give you something to do in the interim right so I was like okay cool well, ended up loving that. Did that for about nine and a, about nine and a half years and took a bunch of horticulture classes and learned about entomology and soil and all that really got into growing. You know, I grow my own vegetables and corn and stuff like that, which kind of melds perfect with hunting. Um, what leads me up to where I am now is we had a client who was an Air Force, retired Air Force colonel. Then he retired from Lockheed Martin. His wife was a Naval War commander. Um, he wanted to learn how to hunt. Took him hunting, shot a deer, 
just did the whole thing and cooked it for him. And he was like, what the hell? Why are you doing this? That was amazing. You like killed this animal. You skinned it. You got it. You butchered it. And then you cooked it. Like not a lot of people can do that and do it efficiently in the way you did it. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I just grew up doing this stuff. And I was 39 at the time. And my body was pretty much like, I'm done, man. Like hauling rock and building walls and moving trees your body just kind of like it's over. So we started looking at culinary schools and it was like, well, my wife's in college. So there's, you know, a hundred thousand plus dollars in student loans. I didn't feel like adding another $50,000. And we came across the Rocky Mountain Institute of Meat at Cook Street Culinary School up in Denver. Looked at my wife. I'm like, what do you think? She's like, yeah, do it. 1800 bucks. Swipe the card. Here's Jason, the butcher 10 years later. 12 years later, you know, <laughs> here I am. Um, it, it was kind of, it's kind of crazy when, when I think about it and I sit back and it's like, I went from this to this, to this, and I never thought I'd be doing what I'm doing. So what happened was I took the butcher school and the guy who ran it, his name was Mark. And he was like, dude, you're really good at this. Like, what do you want to do with, with after you're done here? And I said, well, I'd like to open a little butcher shop down in Colorado Springs and, you know, make fresh sausage and learn how to dry cure a little better and make jerkies. And, and he's like, no, nah, man, you're going to come with me. So I spent an entire year doing my full-time landscape job and then driving to Denver and doing stuff with him for free. I mean, I got paid once. I got paid 50 bucks. That was it. An entire year as a side gig. So I... Monday through Friday, landscape, take a shower, drive to Denver, spend the weekend in Denver, come home Sunday night, start it all over again. Did that for like a year. And my name started getting out and other chefs started hiring me to teach their sous chefs or butcher in-house. Um, Mark introduced me to a lot of the, the high, high-end chefs up there. And I ended up working for Josea Rosenberg, who won Top Chef season five. And did some stuff for him. And, you know, I was like, oh, wow, this is, this might go somewhere. <laughs> and ended up designing a, a dry cure cabinet for his restaurant and a meat processing room for his restaurant. And, you know, it just kind of exploded from there. And then I got a random email from 10th Special Forces Group. And I was like, why the hell is 10th Group reaching out? What did I do? You know, you see that symbol and then the name. I'm like, holy crap, what did I do? reading through it and turns out my name kept popping up every time they would like research or reach out to the culinary world. Cause I'm tied to the American culinary federation, the ACF, my name would pop up. So sat down, they said, Hey, this is what we're looking to do. And what they were looking to do was basically like, how do we identify a healthy animal in the field? How do we humanely and ethically take it down? How do we, you know, skin it, gut it, and then butcher it and cook it in an austere environment with little to no equipment? And the need was, from my understanding, was they had teams of guys that kept getting sick on local national, you know, you're eating with the village leaders and all that. Well, we don't, they don't have health inspectors in other, you know, third world countries like we do. We got the USDA, the FDA which isn't much better. I'm not, you know, I'm not promoting them whatsoever. Um, if you want to eat clean meat, learn to hunt. <laughs> it's kind of my attitude or know your farmer directly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we, uh, I went back to the ACF and I was like, Hey, this is with the military. They're like, Oh, do whatever. We'll, we'll bless it off. Uh, you know, the whole thing. And August of 2014, we had a class put together. Um, I knew nothing about working with the government. It's I'm still learning 10 year, nine and a half, 10 years later, like dealing with DOD contract. Like it's just crazy the amount of paperwork for one class. Uh, so we did a class Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning. They're like, Hey, can we do another one next week? And I was like, no, he's like, what do you mean? No. Um, I was like, well, I got to get animals and make sure the farmer wants to do this again. And the farmer, um, actually was, uh, Alex Seidel up in Denver. Uh, really well-known chef owns, owns fruition and mercantile and shook chicken, James board, um, James Beard award-winning chef out of, you know, which is huge. It's like the Super Bowl for chefs. And, you know, Alex is like, no, just use my place. No problem. I got pigs and I get you sheep and whatever else you need. So we ended up doing like a class, skip a week, a class, skip a week, and then a class. And here I am, you know, 2023, I'm teaching like third, fifth, 10th, first group, all three Ranger bats, CAG, pararescue, SEER, Air Force SEER, that is. Um, I can't even list them all. Airborne, 82nd Airborne, 173rd. Like, I just got a laundry list of clients. Um, That's pretty much the short story of how Jason became Jason the Butcher. That's awesome. There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) <laughs> there's there's a ton you know it's Very like you good. go from one thing you're like holy crap why, I'm, now i'm doing this you know and i i've got to cook with celebrity chefs one of my best friends is a celebrity chef a three-time food network champ um there's some other stuff going on in the background with with some hollywood people and rock stars and <laughs> i'm like yeah my the trajectory of my life is really I don't know how I'm here. I don't know why I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> I love what I do. It's not work. I screw off in the field with a bunch of Army and Air Force dudes and Marines. <laughs> I've got a lot of Marine clients, too. And you, and you teach them skills that you're passionate about. I mean, sounds like a pretty sweet gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No complaints here. Like you guys, you guys, you know, obviously you love what you do or else you wouldn't be doing it right now. Luke and I have talked about that before. It's like my... I, I never saw myself doing what I do now. You know, I, I, hell, I didn't even know that it was a job when I was in high school. And, you know, I don't think Luke had any grand designs when people ask him what he wanted to be when he grew up of, of starting a, you know, a t-shirt hat and t-shirt company. Um, <laughs> but it's like, you, you find yourself on these paths and, and, uh, and man, I've, we've talked to a lot of folks. It's, it's, it's those unexpected turns take you to places that you didn't necessarily see coming. And yeah, you yeah. Just... I figured after I was a cop, I was like, Oh, I'm going to retire doing this. You know, yeah. this is now thank God I'm not a cop. Like I couldn't oh, yeah. imagine the crap they put up with now. It's insane. I, w- I wanted to be a game warden for a while and I've man, thank goodness that didn't work out. Nothing against yeah, game wardens, board. but all the ones I know are like, I hate my life. <laughs> <laughs> I love my job, but I hate my life right now. Right. 
Most of them don't get to hunt very much. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I don't even get to hunt. Every time I want to hunt, freaking army, like, hey, what you doing in September and October and November? I'm like trying to go hunting. They're like, sorry, bro, you're not going hunting now. <laughs> <laughs> the the first thing I have to unpack and I have to ask is you said your your love gardening. We have been getting our asses handed to us with trying to garden here in Colorado. Do you use a greenhouse or what 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 give me some tips because we're we're just getting crushed. It's all about the soil. It's all about the soil. So um in my garden, if I was outside, I would show you. I've got this year I just did um pumpkins, herbs, and corn. I'm growing some high altitude uh uh, Indian corn. And it's all about your soil. It, it, get it super organic. Um, what and all I use is like leaves from the oak trees and all that. I pile all that crap together. I take old dead grass and I just till it all together. And I built a, a nice mound and just started dropping seeds in it. Um, seeds, seeds are big too. Um, you want to find some quality seeds. There's a lot of different companies out there. I just happen to use, uh, what's the name of it? I think it's called heirloom something seeds. I could, I could send it to you, send you a link, but, uh, they got good seeds. Yeah. It's, it's all about the soil and getting, once you get them started, like it'll take off and I, I can grow anything in sandy soil, loamy soil, you know, rock, you know, grass will grow on rock if you give it enough water. Yeah. That's the biggest thing right now. I'd only had intended a growing maybe 15 or 10 or 15 things of corn. And I've got 20 out there and each one of them has at least four, four years growing off of it. Like that's awesome. Quadrupled what my plan was, you yeah. know, holy crap. Every day I go out there, I'm like, there's another one growing. Holy shit. Where'd that come from? Our corn has doing well. Squash and zucchini, we've got a ton of. Cucumbers are doing well. Peppers and tomatoes, nothing. Just got crushed. And, like, so I don't really know what's going on. The soil's good. It, I mean, it's composted horse manure. Yeah. Uh, mixed in with our compost, and we compost. And so that, the soil's pretty. We have uh, raised, we just got galvanized uh, water yeah. troughs yeah. for our raised beds. But I don't know if it's too much sun or too much water, or enough water. I think it's not enough water, maybe. I don't, I don't know. For the tomato, I, I can't tomatoes. figure it out. Tomatoes and peppers have just been. I can't, we can't get them to, we have two plants that lasted from our tomatoes and they've just gotten crushed. Yeah. Tomatoes. You're not the only one in the past. I would say three years, everybody's been struggling on the tomatoes. Only if you kind of pay attention to the weather, our cooler days have lasted longer over the past three years. So instead of getting super hot, like in mid June, we're just now getting hot in mid July. So not having those real, like real, real hot, like I got a neighbor down the road. He normally, his tomato plants are usually taller than me times two. And they're maybe two feet tall this year. Maybe, huh. you know, and I asked him, I said, well, what was going on? He goes, well, last year and the year before and the year before that, I left them in the garage under grow lights until they hit about four feet tall. And then I moved them outside when I knew the weather was going to be consistently over 55 degrees at night. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. You know? Yeah. So don't feel bad. You're not the only one who's not. I planted five last year and I got, they didn't like, I think one produced like a grape sized tomato, like a half <laughs> grape. I'm looking, I'm like, that's sorry. <laughs> but pumpkins, yeah, squashes are doing my pumpkins. I, I got one pumpkin plant that's got 
at least a dozen vines with five pumpkins on each vine right now. Hell yeah. That's I like awesome. to grow pumpkins for little kids. Some of the army guys will bring their kids over and I'm like, pick a pumpkin. Cause I don't have kids. So let you, let you guys use them. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, I had to ask that question personally, but yeah. our, our listeners probably aren't tuning in for gardening uh, on the Hunt Lift You podcast. So let's get into some some uh, some meat. So, kind of give us a rundown of, of what one of these courses would look like, you know, to start, and you know, kind of got the the wave tops, but kind of give us a little bit of detail on what are you what are you specifically you're showing them how to to slaughter it. What does that kind of look like? Going through the yeah. breakdown process, all that. Yeah. So um, we spend the first two days slaughtering and, 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 um, I adhere to the use of sock policy for animal welfare and all that, you know, there's, there's certain rules and regulations within the military you have to follow. Well, turns out I had already done um, my, my policies are a lot more strict than actually use of socks policies are as far as animal slaughter. So we basically teach them how to identify a live, healthy animal. What does that look like? Is the animal up and moving and happy because animals are very social amongst each other? So do I have an animal that's social and run around with everybody else? Do I have an animal sitting down in the corner, not looking so hot, breathing heavy? Its coat looks like crap. It's got mucus around, you know, its eyeballs, its mouth, its nose, its butt. Like those are the types of things we're looking for. So if I have 10 animals and one of them looks like that, we don't want that animal, even though the farmer... That's the animal the farmer, you know, in a third world country wants to give you because he doesn't want to deal with it anymore, you know, and he's be like, oh, I got this one. You take it. And you're like, no, I don't want that one. That one's sick. Something's wrong with that one. Um, so, yeah, we, we look at live. And then from there, there's there's a policy where you you have to separate the animal. So visually, one animal cannot see another animal die or be, you know, be processed. So we have our own little system where we have a shoot and it separates everybody and they can't see each other and all that kind of stuff. And then from there we use what's called a captive bolt stunner. So it's like a nine millimeter blank that screws in the top of this big, heavy five pound piece of steel. And I show them where the two options you draw a ear, imagine a line from the ear to the opposite eye X marks the spot. Or you can come from the back of the skull. And a lot of times I find with sheep and goats coming from behind, they can't see this big shiny piece of metal. So they don't get freaked out and move their head around. They're a little bit, you know, they're not not too agitated. And we don't always have an opportunity to do that, but 99% of the time we can do that. So I teach them how to use that, how to put the animal down. You know, I don't like animals being super stressed out. I always compare it to... If you had to put your dog, your cat, your hamster, your bird, like your own animal down, would you treat it like crap? Would you like just drag it over in the corner and shoot it in the head and kick it in the dirt? Right? No, that's not how we do things. And one, it's against policy. Two, it's against my morals and policy and ethics as it is. So if I got an amped up animal, it's like, you know, guys, we got time. Let the thing relax a little bit. Give it some food let it chill out. And then we do the deed. And then I teach them how to properly bleed them, you know, pit or pigs and cows. We do a little bit different than sheep and goats basically slit the throat. And then from there, it's just normal field processing. What, what's the, the difference between a, a pig or a sheep or, or 
on how you do that? So I prefer with uh, cow and pigs is to go to the sternal notch and then you just, you take your 10 inch butcher knife and you go straight in and you just clip the top of the um, aorta, the top of the heart and they bleed out instantly. The reason why I don't like to go all the way across on like a pig or a cow is because there's so much fat and muscle right here that you could end up, and I've seen it, and it was just horrifying to watch, but you end up sawing at it until you hit one of the arteries and the animal suffering, even like, even with a captive bolt to me, it's just not, it's not ethical and humane. The quick you want them to die as quickly as possible. So sheep and goats, you know, their necks are only like that big around. So they're easy to get from point A to point B. But the bigger animals, especially pigs, their jowls are so big. Their neck muscles only like that long. But their jowls, jowls are so big, I'd basically need a, a katana samurai sword to get like able to get one swipe across their throat. So just, right there at the sternal notch, you just insert your knife and they bleed out. And, they, and they're, they're gone in, you know, 20 seconds. So that bolt, that doesn't kill them? So technically what the bolt does is you're, you're, what you're trying to achieve with the bolt is to hit between the lobes and knock them unconscious, completely out. If you hit them just right, they will eventually, they, they could eventually die, but there's a better chance that after a couple minutes, they're going to open their eyes and look around like, what the hell was that kind of thing? So the, the, the point of the bolt is to knock the brain so they're knocked out, but the heart is still pumping. So then when we slit or bleed, we pump all that blood out of the, out of the system. So the bolt doesn't really kill them. It just knocks them out, knocks, renders them unconscious. They don't, they don't feel anything. They don't know what's going on. From the time they're bolted to the time I slit their throat, you're talking 10 seconds, maybe. It, it, sometimes even quicker than that. And why why would that combination of the bolt and then bleeding them out that way, you, you know, walk walk people why that would be more that why that would be better than just say a you know a bullet to the head. So a bullet to the head stops all brain function, right? And we're not trying to stop all brain function. All we're trying to do is um, knock them out completely. So if we stop all brain function, our heart doesn't pump anymore. So now you've got all this, you know, blood in the in the meat and adrenaline that could, you know, that could expel. So your overall goal is to get as much blood out as possible. So if you shoot it, you're not really going to bleed. I mean, you're going to get a couple heartbeats out of it or some just general blood coming out. But with the bolt, it allows the heart to continue to beat. That's kind of how that works. Let me get one of those, Perry. Been yeah, slaughtering just, cattle wrong on my farm for a long time. <laughs> well, so I was just thinking, Jason, we uh, my brother and I just did a a pig picking, uh, you know, family pig picking, did a whole hog, and and uh, yeah, I was thinking about that for for the future, and I've done a couple of pig pickings, and that it makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, I never really never really thought about it that way. Is that something a lot that of guys use like you at 20, the Institute? A lot of people use like a 22 mag yeah. on pigs and, and even you see guys use 300 blackout on cows and stuff like that. If, if you have the ability to hang them upside down right away after you shoot them with a 300 blackout, 
then you'll get blood drainage. You won't get as much blood drainage, but you will still get blood drainage. Um, same thing with a pig, that 22 mag, it pen penetrates the skull and it knocks them out and you might have a little bit of brain activity going on in there to pump the blood. Uh, if you watch like the old school, like down in Louisiana or on the East coast, they'll take that front leg and they'll pump it. They'll start moving it. And that makes the heart move. And they're just pushing that blood out because they shot them in the face. Whereas if you use the bolt, you don't have to worry about that. You bolt them, they fall over, you stick them, they bleed out. And I like the bolt too, especially for like a boucherie, a pig picking thing. You can collect the blood and make the blood sausage, right? Whereas if I shoot it and I don't have that heart pumping the blood out, I'm going to be like scooping dirty, nasty blood into a bowl, trying to clean it to make blood sausage. Whereas if the, we still have that brain activity, then we can get, we can utilize more of the animal itself. Yeah, that's, that's great to know, actually. Um, Cause we trying to think, I haven't been there and we've killed one in a while, but I mean, when I was growing up, we would just shoot it in the head with a 22 and like, yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the same deal, the ear to the eye. So my grandpa always told me when we'd shoot them, yep. and, um, but we'd hang them really quickly. So we'd take the head off and then use the tractor to then lift them and then let them drain. But oh, yeah, sounds, yeah, yeah. yeah, sounds like there's a lot better of a way to keep <laughs> that heart pumping. Let, yeah. Where, where do you guys want to do this? I'll come out. I'm ready. <laughs> I just, a brand, I just got a brand new 2023 Chevy Colorado ZR2. Heck yeah! I'll, I'll talk to my old, my old man's in southwestern Virginia, and that's where he uh, that's where he slaughters. We slaughter a, a couple beef every year. You talk oh, about nice. a hell of a seminar, Luke. That would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever you guys want to do, just let me know. Um, I'm down for whatever. I do all kinds of different events. For, I work with uh, Independence Fund. They had a group of guys out here and that's what we did with them. We slaughtered a pig and a goat and I taught them how to butcher it and we cooked it. We basically just screwed off all week and had a good time with them. And they were like, holy crap, I didn't know how you, this is how you do things. And then a couple of guys were like, yeah, I've been hunting my whole life. I've never seen somebody butcher like that. I've been screwing this up my entire life. <laughs> and I'm like, you only know what you know, right? You only taught what you're taught. And at the end of the day, if you can eat it, who cares? <laughs> That's what I tell everybody. <laughs> if you can eat it, who cares? Turn it into stew meat, call it a day. <laughs> What's, uh, what would be, you know, one of those common things that you see where somebody who, you know, they come through your course and, and they've got some experience, they've, they've butchered some animals, but you know, what are they going to, what are you going to see typically that they're kind of doing wrong or what you would, where you would tweak a lesson or two for them? A lot, a lot of times I get, um, I get the, uh, there's two major things I get the, I do the gutless method and I cringe. And then another thing is one of our podcast regulars is going to get a, you're going to break his heart right now. Cause he swears by the gutless, gutless method. So I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the gutless method because I like the organ meat. Like I like the heart, the liver, the kidneys, you know, I like those things. Even lung, lung is good. Um, I like the ribs intact. I, I have special things I do with ribs. Like I have this cool thing where, you know, the membrane on the inside, you strip the membrane and then you flip it back over on the meat side 
or keep it on the membrane side and you just slice down each side of that rib and then you pull that up and then you slice the meat off the rib, but it's one long strip, right? Then I scrape the rib real good and then I'll wrap the rib meat around the end of the rib and put a butcher's twine around it. And then you marinate those and then you put them on your grill and you got like little lollipop chops and you're not dealing with the membrane or anything. Yeah. See, he's he's smiling. He's like, damn, I know what I'm doing next time. That sounds awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I can send you pictures of, of stuff I've done. So one of the biggest things is they're like, oh, we always throw the ribs away or we don't mess with the shanks because there's so much silver skin in the shanks and I don't want to deal with the silver skin. And, and I, I tell them like, you're missing out on really good and neck is another big one that they ta- everybody tosses. And I'm like, and I get it with chronic way. Everybody's worried about chronic wasting and the neck and all that kind of stuff. But on domestic animals, I'm not really worried about that. But with wild game, I get it. You don't want to do that. However, you can debone a neck and keep it as a roast. If, if you do it properly, like you start at one side and you just slowly peel the meat around to the other side. And then roll it and tie it into a nice neck roast, depending upon the size of the animal. Um, shank is probably my favorite cut because it's, of it's so good when you slow cook it. Yeah, shanks are just amazing. That that silver skin, that that fascia when it when you're cooking it, it's a natural tenderizer. It's a natural flavor. It imparts flavor. It helps tenderize the meat, and it's just amazing. And so many people m- miss out on it. Uh, one of the local division wildlife guys, uh, they asked me if I would volunteer my time to teach rookie, they call it the rookie sports person program. So families will sign up to learn how to hunt and fish and camp and all that through Colorado department of wildlife. And I think five, I couldn't do it last year. I was so busy. I'd love to do it this year, but four years prior, I would come in and teach these families how to skin a deer, how to butcher the deer. And then we'd do a cooking class together and, it was always a really big hit. And a lot of the division guys are like, oh, I hate shank. I don't know what to do with it. I just sit there and cut silver skin off and throw it in the grinder for burger. And I'm like, why aren't you Asabuka? Like make Asabuka with them. And they're like, what is what is this weird dish you speak of? <laughs> you know? And now every time I see a Department of Wildlife guy, he's like, I love Asabuka. It's the best meal ever. Um, so the, the, those are probably the two biggest things everybody's saying, Oh, I always throw rib meat away. And I always throw the shanks away. And then a third would be, I didn't know you could uh, do that with the saddle of the animal. So the saddle is basically the short line where the tenderloin and the New York strips lay. You can, you can make T-bones and porterhouses and all that out of those, even on wild game, because once you split the spine in half, you can clean the spinal cord out and wipe all that down. And now you're not worried about chronic wasting, but I can still make my own T-bones porterhouses or pull the tenderloin out and make, you know, filet out of that, out of the um, tenderloin. But a lot of guys are amazed that you can actually make, they're not going to be big T-bones like a beef animal or something, but neither is a lamb. You know, you can buy T-bones and porterhouses and land for lamb. Um, so those are probably the biggest things. Plus that they get to learn where all the cuts come from, you know, where the prime rib is compared to a, an elk and a, and a cow, right? They all have the same muscle structure. One animal is just bigger than the other. The other one, one's just leaner than the other, but 
all the muscles are the same on all the animals, no matter what. We just name them differently so we can be, you know, species specific when we're ordering or going to the grocery store. You know, if I if I said I want beef belly, they would look at me and go, what the hell are you talking about? Oh, no, I want pork belly. Oh, I know what pork belly is. That's bacon. But beef belly, they'd be like, where'd this guy come from? So, yeah, I think it's more about understanding. Once they realize what the cuts are, they're like, oh, those are cuts that I just diced up and threw in for stew. I can actually make something out of this. Yeah, you can you can make all kinds of things. Uh, I just had a class like a week or so ago, survival people, and we took a goat. And I think I made, let me see here, just so you have what you call your primals, your subprimals, and then your retail cuts. So your primals are your major cuts that you start with. So I'll use a pig as an example. So you have the the Boston butt, which is the top front of the shoulder. And then you have your picnic shoulder, which is the bottom part of the shoulder. Then you have your ribs and your belly, your legs and your loin, right? That's it. Those are the major cuts. Then you go in there and you say, okay, I want to make bacon. I want to make spare ribs. I want to make pork chops. I want to make shoulder cut roasts. And then I want to seam out the rear legs and make, you know, more ham, like country ham or something like that. So that's kind of the level that I teach them. And once they, once they grasp that one goat after I retail cut the whole thing could produce like 70 different cuts of meat. You just took an 80 pound goat and you stretch that meat out into weeks worth of food if that's how you choose to do it. The other option is you can uh, leave it in the subprimals. If you have a large family, like, you know, if you got you, your wife and two kids, I always suggest you leave the shoulders together and you may, you know, and you, you, you slow roast the shoulders or you or you, you know, you smoke them or something like that. I, I always lend the bigger, the family, the bigger, the roast is kind of my, my path. The, the smaller, the family, the more cuts you want. So you can span it out kind of thing. There's no point in making 70 different cuts for a family of six. You're going to, you're going to go through that animal in a matter of like a week, it's going to be gone. Right. Why not just leave it in whole bigger cuts and roast it, you know, use it as a roast instead of wasting your time making all these little tiny cuts. Cause I don't think your kids care about lamb chops. Do they? <laughs> they just want meat on the table. That's all they give a crap about. <laughs> my my two year old did just eat some caribou. So it was ground. Oh, no. Nice. But, I need to get some caribou. <laughs> it was honestly, it was a game changer for me processing. Cause you know, we grew up hunting whitetails. I'm, you know, I'm North Carolina, Virginia and whitetail was obviously, you know, the primary for me. And it was a game changer when I started utilizing those whole, whole cuts, more whole roasts, more. Cause you know, yeah. I, I learned from my old man. It's like you say, you, you don't know what you don't know, but yeah. you know, I saw him process a certain way and it was fine. It was, you know, your standard steaks from your back loins and, and a couple yeah. of steaks from your, from your, your rounds. And then a lot of hamburger and that was, you know, your stew meat and hamburger. And that was pretty much the yeah. way it was, but that's the way I grew up. Yeah. I mean, but then like keeping a lot of those shoulder muscles, you know, utilizing the shanks, the necks, keeping those things intact and then coming up with creative ways to cook them really was a game changer for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to show you guys. I'll send you guys some, uh, it might be on my Instagram post, one of my Instagram posts from years ago, my uh, rib meat from my elk. 
you know, and then I pull, I always pull like the flat iron. I shot a moose and I pulled the flat iron out. That thing was massive. Like, I think the flat iron was probably 18 inches long and about five, six inches thick. It was just huge, just huge, beautiful purple piece of meat. My favorite cut of meat. That's awesome. Yeah, I really want to, I've never had moose. I bet it's delicious. Oh, it's so good. So good. Yeah, like learning the, what to do with the different cuts, like Perry said, which is, it was really eye opening. And because, God, it pains me the number of necks and even shoulders and stuff that, like, I just grew up leaving in the woods. It was just the way you did it. You pulled off these cuts and then everything else wasn't worth your time. And that was just the way we were taught. And yeah, I look back at that and I'm like, and I mean, you know, it's circle life, other things ate it. It's, it is what it is, oh, I yeah. guess, at this point. But now, like, if I, if, you know, nick the front shoulder on my shot on you know on the exit or something and i waste all that meat i'm like damn it like i love you know just being able to have the different options and having the roast and i've learned just a bunch of like really quick tricks to especially when we're whitetail hunting you're killing a lot of deer butchering a lot but what i really like or want to learn is more of that crossover and i grew up helping butcher cattle but i was i don't remember enough to be able to look at it, I could probably look at the cow and I would figure it out because you can watch trace, trace the, you know what it's supposed to look like with the fat and trace, tra- yeah, uh, yeah, all the seam with all the muscle the groups and everything. But when I look at a deer, I don't see it the same way, and I really want to be able to do that. I don't know why I can't. I think I should be able to, but it just it looks completely different to me. So, what yeah. are some, you know, you mentioned being able to do like the porter houses. What are some other cuts and like, you know, especially some of the ham steaks that you could do that would kind of translate to what we might know as for beef cuts. Yeah, I think, I think that's what is interesting about what I teach is I took all my field knowledge, you know, we'll call it home knowledge, and then learned the professional end of it, like a professional butcher would do. And it just kind of came together. It clicked for me like a meat, like you said, you struggle to see like, where's the freaking flat iron on this elk? I can see it on the beef animal, but I can't see it on the elk. And I, and I have soldiers that are the same way. They're like, it's just not clicking. Mm-hmm. Right. So then I know as an instructor, I need to slow, like slow thing, back things down and walk through it and show comparisons back and forth, this, that, and the other. It's, it's really trying to get your mind to realize that the muscle structure is the same. Now, granted the fat content is way different on a, on a deer versus, you know, a beef animal or a pig or whatever, but the muscles are exactly the same. They're in the same place. They're just smaller. And I think that's what throws people off. You know, you get a steak ribeye and the things, you know, eight inches across. You look at a deer ribeye and it's an inch across. Yeah. It's the same cut of meat. It's just much, much, much smaller. Um, I'm not, I would rather take, I would rather leave the loin attached to the, to the spine. Like I said, if you split that animal in half, let's say just using a Sawzall in that, in that rack, we'll call that the rack of deer, like a rack of lamb. If you split that rack in half, just clean the, the freaking spinal cord out, wipe it off with some, uh, you know, vinegar water or whatever. I'm not, I'm not really worried about the chronic wasting or anything like that, but we're not either. I don't, I don't think that's what's going to kill me. I'm just guessing, but I don't think I'm I'm pretty, pretty sure CWD isn't what kills me. (laughs) It's going to be something else. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, Well, and if, 
if it gets you, then I guess you're zombie, you're zombie one right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you'd be pretty infamous. I bet we sell some t-shirts after <laughs> I went. <laughs> They're like, there's Luke with his head tilted, running in circles, <laughs> half the hair on his head. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So like, I like to do those, you know, like an elk, you, you can totally do tomahawks steaks with elk, you know, leave that rib attached, clean that spinal cord out and leave that loin to the rib all attached in one thing. It's really hard to explain. Um, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. I played a little bit. So I was a, I was part of the trapping program down at Fort Benning for pigs. And so I was killing a lot of pigs and I was just trying to one, find like the fastest way to process them. Cause I was just tired. I wasn't going to like, you know, so I was just taking a sawzall and just cutting whole chunks and then throwing them on yeah. the smoker. And so for the back straps, what I was doing, I, uh, I was making like butterfly where I was just leaving them on the rib or on the spine and then cutting them right there at the cutting the vertebrae. So they were both attached and made some really cool, really good. They were, they cooked really well and still attached to the bone. And so I thought about trying to do some of that with, with, uh, cervids with deer or an elk. So I might have to try that this year if I get something on the ground. Yeah. Super, like it's super easy, you know, leave the rack attached. So you go between rib four and five or five and six, and then all the way back down to 12 and 13, like you would on a cow. So it'd be five and six, 12 and 13. That's your primal rib right there. That's where your prime rib roasts come from. Leave all that attached, you know, detach the, the short loin and the legs and then the front shoulder, the chuck. That's what a cow is called, the chuck. And then you have this big, huge rack, you know, like this. Just cut that thing in half and then just cut them between the ribs. And you got tomahawk chops, man. I mean, I can show you a trick with butcher's twine where you can strip the meat, wrap the twine around it and strip the meat off and the bones as clean as it'll ever be. And that's all presentation stuff. You know, that's just... That's cool guy shit right there. <laughs> well, that, that's the kind of thing that I would love to know. Cause I mean, you know, I'm just imagining you can do some, some pretty cool stuff with lambs and the little lamb pops, you know, you could probably yeah. do the same thing with the, you know, those, I don't like to shoot them, but every once in a while, someone pops a, a young, uh, you know, a young deer, you know, by mistake. I bet that would, you can make some pretty good venison pops with those things. Man, a little deer like that, I would just, Freaking splay it out on an iron cross and hang it over a fire and cook the whole damn thing as one piece. I want to try that too, for sure. <laughs> that's one of the things we do at every class is I teach them how to build smokers, how to build a rock oven, how to cook over open flame, how to cook a whole animal splayed out. I even have a technique where leave your rib cage and your flanks attached to your ribs. So detach them from the um, short line, the saddle area but leave them attached to the bottom of the ribs, cut the neck off. So now I got this whole rib cage and take the front shoulders off, dice up the meat with vegetables and rice, soak it real good, and then pack it in that chest cavity and then hang it over a fire and slow roast it. And then after it's turned nice and golden brown on the outside, wrap it in tin foil, put it in the rock oven for like three or four hours, pull it out and the ribs open up. Now you got ribs to chew on. You got all this beautiful meat and vegetables on the inside. Dude, Dear Dustin. I'm sold. That sounds like a cabin meal for sure. Yeah. It yeah. Does. Yeah. I'll invite me out. I'll come cook for you guys. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> well, done. Sold. <laughs> yeah. 
Do you uh, do you do any courses that are like open for the public, or do you just solely work with like DOD and like contracted courses? So most of my classes DOD stuff, um, but I do do uh, a friend of mine. His name's Jason Marsteiner. He owns uh, Mountain Man Survival, uh, Survival yeah. University. Yeah, up in Cripple Creek yeah, area. Yeah, familiar with him yeah. as well. Yeah, that's where I do a lot of my stuff up there. And like, we just wrapped up a class with his 50 dares and another group that came in, they all kind of combined. But yeah, I absolutely do. Um, you know, so I call them civilian courses. You know, like if you guys wanted to put something together, you just say, hey, can you come here at this time? You know, and I'll tell you, sure, I'll be there. You know, just make sure you you charge people for <laughs> this kind of stuff because animals aren't cheap, you know? Yep. Um, unless you got a place to go hunt, like, shit, I'll drive anywhere, take me hunting, and I'll teach you how to butcher and cook all day long for a free hunt. Well, we can definitely, we can definitely uh, support a free hunt, but no, that's, <laughs> it's good to know. You know, I think a lot of our listeners would potentially be interested in, in uh, trying to do one of your courses. So it's just like a reach out schedule. You don't run them like recurring or, like no, best, if somebody's uh, interested, what's the best way that they would either get a hold of you or go through uh, other Jason's course? Yeah, the best way for me is hit me, get me through Instagram, and the same for Jason. Just messaging through Instagram, um, even Facebook is usually the easiest for both of us. Okay. And he does, he does all kinds of survival bushcraft class. He's got a fifty-day survival course um, where people spend fifty days learning all these techniques. Then the last seven days, he strips you of everything and you go on, I don't know, it's like a 10 or a 15 mile hike. And as you do a thing, he'll give you another piece of equipment back. If you do it wrong, he'll take one away from you. Like he just totally screws with you the whole time. That's really cool. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool, it's not as intense as like a seer class or anything like that. Cause he wants the people to learn. He doesn't want people to get hurt or sick or die or anything like that. But yeah, he kind of, he works it through and then he integrates me into there so they know how to deal with animals if they end up getting like getting a rabbit or something like that. You know, we teach how to make bone broth out in a field because that's the most nutritious thing you could ever think about. And that's another that goes back to uh, why I hate the gutless method. Right. Because there's so much usable bone from the ribs and stuff to make your own stock of broth or whatever you want to do with it type of thing. Just. I don't like to waste, you know, anything. I've gotten, yeah, I've gotten really big into making my own stock and broths. And I actually, I was watching, I think it was a meat eater episode. And one of the chefs that was on there, I think they were killing pigs or Neil guy. They're down in Texas. He grabbed all the scraps and was like making stock out of that. And I was like, oh, yeah. that makes total sense. Cause you're cooking down. It's the same thing with, you know, the shanks, you're cooking down all the connective tissue. Why didn't even, exactly. so I made, I took all my scraps that I usually feed to the dogs, cooked all that down. Yep. It's some beautiful, beautiful stock. And then I didn't even think about it until I was done. Now I had an extra, I don't know, 12 pounds of, it was basically just like pulled venison where mm-hmm. and there's only a couple big tendons I had to pull out. And I had all this extra meat that I just put it in gallon bags, froze it. And then I would pull it out and throw whatever seasonings I wanted into it, make tacos or, you know, yeah. like, this is always waste. I always give this to the dogs, but now yeah. I t- took it and I've got like two gallons of stock and, a 12 pounds of meat or that ratio was off or whatever I got out of it. It was, it was a, a lot of stuff. And I was like, man, this is, this is really cool. So. And the cool thing with stock is you can put it once it's cool, just put it in like a one gallon or like a one quarter or a one gallon or a two gallon Ziploc bag and then freeze it that way. And then 
you could even do the little the little Ziploc bags. And then when you go hunting, you have frozen stock, just slip it in between. And as it melts, just drink it. Oh, hell yeah. You know, as it's melting, you drink it. And you'll hydrate five times faster than you will with water, ever would with water. Yeah. You know, because you have the sodium, you have the vitamins, the minerals, and they just immediately go into your system. Damn, I never thought about that. Hydrating with stock. That's fucking brilliant. Yeah. 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 It's it's a way, way, way faster way to hydrate than it is through water ever will hydrate you. Yeah, I like I like to, especially in the winter, I'll uh I'll drink, I'll heat it up in the mornings. And before I have my coffee, I'll have my stock. And that's what I start my day off with. And I love it. I mean, it's, I didn't, uh, I didn't really think about using it in the field though. I really like that idea. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've even done it in water. It filled up my water bottles for about three quarters of the way up and then froze them. And then you just bring those with you. You can do it with, you know, those toss in the plastic water bottle in the trash or the recycle where it's never going to get recycled anyway. Um, just keep using them for that. Yeah, it's a great idea. It's a good tip right there. What do you got, Perry? What else haven't we covered, Jason? You're, you're um, at a restaurant, or do you, do you still have that? Beast and Brews? No, I didn't. I, uh, at the time, I had plans to do both. But it just didn't work out. It was either yeah. one or the other. And I was like, obviously, I'm going DOD route. You know, yeah. I'm not going to sit here and suffer the consequences of a restaurant when I know I have 20 some odd clients just waiting me, waiting for me to hurry the hell up and come back to work doing DOD stuff. So, yeah, yeah I'm not involved in that anymore. Okay. I yeah. just seen a previous article on, on that. But I think you yeah. made the right choice sitting yeah. in a restaurant and, I've worked, Perry and I have both kind of came up working in the restaurant industry uh, in our early 20s. And that versus hanging out in the woods with a bunch of soft dudes, butchering yeah. animals, cooking over a fire. That's an easy yeah. fucking decision to make for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no kidding. It, like, literally, it was like, hey, you need to let me know by Sunday. And I was like, well, it's Saturday. So I'm just going to let you know right now. <laughs> yeah. I got to go have surgery and then I'm not coming back ever again. And that, that's pretty much how it ended was I had, I had surgery and then I just was like, yeah, I'm not coming back. We're done. Working at a restaurant is one of those things that I think is everyone should do. I mean, there's some, there's some really good skills, but yeah, it's not for me. So it's just soul sucking is what it is. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it'd it'd be like the, like being a cop right now. That's just soul sucking. Yep. nobody everybody hates you everybody wants you to die it's like uh why okay whatever why won't you answer calls because you all fucking hate me and you one minute you want me here the next you don't what do you want i'm i'm confused now i now the cops are all fucked up running around not knowing what to do you know but yeah now my my job love love it i've met some amazing people um and i look back and it's pretty crazy to see I'm still like, I still stay in contact with a lot of soldiers. Like um, I'll get guys from different, they're in different countries. Like they're in Africa or whatever. Like I just had one for 4th of July, a soldier. She's a GSB. She's a support battalion for third group. She's like, Hey man, I'm in Africa or wherever she was. 
And she was like, I'm trying to remember exactly how we slaughtered the sheep. I got a, a green beret here who was like, oh, I'm just going to shoot it in the face with something. And she's like, no, that's not how we're supposed to do that. So I kind of sent her a couple videos like, hey, this is how you do things. And then a day later, I'm getting pictures and she's teaching other guys. And, you know, for me, that's like, OK, that's what my job is. Like I taught her she deployed and now she's teaching freaking Green Berets and other guys how to butcher properly because, you know, GBs are funny. They're like, I can do this. And then they watch me and they're like, holy shit, I've been doing this wrong my entire life. <laughs> I'm like, it's not that you're doing it wrong. It's just a different way. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to browbeat you because you suck as a butcher. Not everybody's a butcher, but it's just a different way of doing things, you know? And I think learning the horticulture stuff for me kind of just brought everything together, the hunting, the animal husbandry part of it, the growing your own food and having that ability to just do everything yourself is very important. Um, the Marine Corps who is probably going to be one of my largest customers here, hopefully shortly, they're trying to get every Marine how to become self-sustaining and not reliant on a supply chain, right? So what do we do if we don't get our MREs or UGRs or whatever? Well, we got to be able to utilize what's available to us in these different parts of, you know, Asia or whatever. And so that's where I'm, I've been coming in and like, I worked with turtleback trailers, right? I, I was talking to CAG guys and I think it was 10th group and fifth group guys. And they were like, yeah, we're, we have these big ass kitchens that we, you know, they take like 10 axle vehicles to tow around They're, you know, millions of dollars for them. We're trying to find a more quick, nimble way of feeding. And I love solving problems, right? I just love like seeing what their problem is and being like, let me see if I can fix that or, or find you a solution. So I started reaching out to trailer companies and Turtleback like bid on it right away because one of the guys there, he's an amputee, one of the brothers, and he does stuff with the Air Force. Sir, you know, he fakes like, you know, they doctor him up and he yells and screams and then the guys come in and do all that scenario stuff. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a trailer from Turtleback to drive across the country to all the bases to say, hey, this is what you can feed guys. You can feed 150 people off this thing if you set it up right, and here's how you do it. And you know that turned into going to Fort Lee in Virginia and uh, 05 going, Who's, whose is that? And I'm like, that's mine, sir. And he's like, how do I get one of those? He's, he's big into overlanding. He's like, how do I get one of those? I'm like, I don't know. You call the company, you give them $50,000 and they give you your trailer. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. And, you know, and I helped them out. They worked with Turtleback. They got two for testing. And unfortunately, things happened at Turtleback. They were just bought out or purchased by another individual. So hopefully that will still continue. Like, They'll develop this trailer for feeding or they can turn it a comms trailer or whatever they want to do with it. But, uh, you know, it's like, how did it go from me just driving around, showing people how to kill animals and gut them and all that kind of stuff to, oh, we need a trailer to me helping 
figure out a feeding trailer, an overland feeding trailer for the military. Uh, same thing with knives. Um, I think I mentioned de facto in the email. Um, I worked with Outdoor Edge a little bit. Dave up in Denver got some stuff from him. You know, those basic kits that come in the plastic, green plastic box. Yep. Destroyed every knife they gave us. Like they didn't hold an edge to save. And Dave's like, I don't expect these to hold up to what you're attempting to do. These are for guys that go hunting and shoot maybe two animals a year, right? Not 12 and then immediately skin and field dress, 12 animals. And, you know, you can't expect that blade to hold up. They're not, they're, they're good metal, but they're not great metal. And then I did some stuff with Gerber with replaceable blades like Havilon and all that. Guys were cutting the shit out of themselves trying to replace the blades. And I'm like, well, technically what you should do is stick it in a log. And they're like, yeah, what fucking stick it in the sand, Jason. It's, you know, what do you want me to, do? I'm not going to walk around with a pair of pliers either and pull the thing and clean it and all that. But you know how those replaceable razors are. They're kind of a pain in the ass. Yep. So those weren't working. And I tried a couple other brands and then I came across de facto on Instagram. I'm always trolling Instagram for equipment. And uh, I'm born Luke now. He's like, no, I'm just, I'm just old. I know, dude, I'm 50 years old. I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> and uh, so I reached out to Facto, said, hey, this is what I do. Who I am. This is who I am. You interested in doing something with me? Matthias is like, hell yeah. <laughs> like, let's do this. Sent me some knives. Knives are great. They hold an edge. Um, I find it hard with the military guys. They lose an edge quickly and I, and I try and beat this into them. Like when your knife starts to, when you feel it getting dull, stop and hone the, hone the blade, go back to it. You will keep that blade edge straight, sharp, continually. If you don't, as the days progress over our training, it's, you're not going to be able to cut a piece of meat with it because you rounded it so bad. We're going to have to put it on a grinder and put a new edge on it. But, you know, I'll have 10 students and two of them will struggle with that. And the rest of them are like, Nope, I'm honing my steel. They'll hone them. They'll keep their knives sharp. And it became a thing with the Marines. They're like, Hey, we're looking for foraging kits, like field foraging that we can process and bushcraft and do stuff like that. So Matthias and I and a local, you might know Kilroy's out East here at Colorado Springs. Yeah. Knife guy, Ron. Yeah. So we all kind of collaborated and we came up with a, a foraging kit, which I'm waiting on Ron to hurry up and make. So I can test them out. So basically that kit's going to consist of a hybrid boning knife, a butcher knife, um, a bushcraft knife, a honing steel with a ferrule rod. And like you can unscrew the honing steel and put in a ferrule rod and a paring knife. So it's, it's a, it's a five piece set and it's all made in America. Cause that was our other issue working with DOD, you know, there's like, the, yeah, the very compliant. Yeah, exactly. And Matthias is like, I'm working on that, but I'm not ready. And <laughs> I happened to meet Ron through another guy. And I was like, wait, let me talk to this guy. And looks like we're bringing back American manufacturing for all the knife kits. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's something. You release. That's something that like 
really has driven me. I'm still, I don't look like it right now. I'm on baby leave, but I'm still in the army. And like, I've been frustrated my entire career because I'm an infantryman with the lack of field craft and the being able to actually self-sustain. I, I remember being, I was at a JRTC at Fort Polk when I was a, I was a platoon leader in the 101st. And we got tack frozen, which means we were like stopped by the, the OCs, the guys overseeing everything because we ran out of water real world. We were toast. We're sitting mm-hmm. next to the Creek, mind you. <laughs> and we're sitting, we're sitting here and they, they have to like emergency bring in the, the, the water to us. But until the brigade could actually prove that they could resupply us, we had to like stop. Like we, you know, couldn't move forward anymore. So we're sitting yeah. there like in this weird holding pattern and I'm staring at this Creek and like, I've done a lot of stuff in the backcountry. I know how to purify water. There's all these options and I'm just looking around. I'm like, why doesn't every single soldier get issued a SteriPen and a pump, like an MSR filter and with the ability to actually like purify yeah, water. That mm-hmm. should be part of it, you know? And then same with like the food thing. It's like, yeah, we could, we can live off this if we just train it, but we just, they're, we're just so reliant. And I think GWAT really got us into that mentality because I know we got our, we were in the first rotation. So there's two different types of rotations. There's, there was like the, uh, oh, hell, like the, I'm, I'm blanking on what we called them for GWAT where you're fighting out of the fobs and you're, you're going out. And then there was what's called a date rotation, which is, you know, the near peer threat for a Lisco fight. Okay. And we were the first, first one for a Lisco fight that had happened since the GWAT had started. And we got our asses kicked. That's because we got so used to helos coming in and being able to always drop resupplies. Well, when you don't own the air, you can't do that. Yep. And, you know, it was just one of those things. I'm like, why are, why are we not doing these things? So I'm glad to see that it's rolling back and some of these units are, are really taking taking hold there. Because I just I was at Carson uh, when I was lived in Colorado, I was here and we were a mech unit. So, you know, we, we have to have supplies. We have to have fuel. So it's less important for mechanized to, to understand that stuff. But the light infantry and the soft forces especially mm-hmm. really need to know those skill sets. Yeah, it's interesting. I picked up a uh, third ID out of Fort Stewart. So one of the CW, I think he's a CW2 that was at Benning. He was a Ranger. He went over to third ID and he was like, why aren't we doing this? And they were like, what are you talking about? And next thing I know, he's like, Hey, shoot me the quote so I can put the packet together. I think I'm going out there in like October. Good. That's awesome. And fourth ID now all of a sudden, like fourth ID is like, Whoa, third ID is doing what, you know how it is in the army. Like, wait, Who's doing cool guy stuff? No, I want to do cool guy stuff. No, I want to do cool guy stuff. You know, that kind of thing. Um, with the Marines, they are lightning years ahead yep. on this. Like lightning years ahead. Well, one of our guys went, he was a, he's a, he is a Marine. He's actually uh, in Australia right now. But he, right before he deployed to Australia, he, yeah, went, he went through. through course. Yeah. 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 He was, yeah. He's the EOD guy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was one of the guys that went through the course and that was kind of the thing was they're doing, they're, they're, the Marines were getting away with or going away with different MOSs. And one of them was the cook, like basically boil water and drop bags in. They're like, anybody can freaking do that. Why, why are you so special? You know? And of course the older guys who were the cooks were like, wait, we're the best that can boil water, you know, that kind of thing. But the Marines have really recognized like, we're going to be in places where we don't own the air or we might lose the air and it might be weeks before we can resupply even via water. 
So these guys got to sustain themselves. So, you know, with the, with the foraging kit, um, I think that's going to be real crucial for them. I just, um, on Instagram, I linked up with a guy at zero breeze, the portable AC, and then another guy, I can't remember. It's basically an insulated tent that he's, that he's converted into a, a, a meat cooler out in the field. That's cool. Yeah, I'll send you the link. Yeah, I'd love His to look at that. Jason, him and I were chatting. God, so how he, many Jasons do you know? I know, man. There's <laughs> hey, seventies baby. That was like the big name. Jason was the big name back in the early seventies. But even he was like, I I got to get you my test unit and let me know how it works with the zero breeze. I said my thing is for us and what we're doing, and what they're going to run into is. And, you know, I had overheard a Marine say when they were checking out the new trailers, say, oh, well, you know, where the hell are we going to store all this meat after we butcher this animal? This is a waste of our time. And I, and I pulled him aside and I said, OK, so what's your thought process on, you know, what you just said? And he's like, well, I'm going to walk into a village, kill like five pigs, butcher them all up. Where am I going to put all this freaking meat and a bunch of coolers and ice? It's not going to work. And I said, that's because your mindset is completely wrong. You got to look at it as I have 50 dudes or 50 Marines that I need to feed for two days. So I only need two days worth of meat. I don't need six weeks worth of meat. So instead of slaughtering five hogs at once, slaughter one, butcher it up properly, and you'll eat that meat in a two day period. Or you can smoke it or, you know, not that you want to have a smoker in the middle of the freaking war, but I know how to build ground in ground smokeless smokers. Like they're not hard to, it's just digging holes. Right. Yep. Um, and he was like, Oh, you're right. I was totally thinking I'm just going to walk into a village and kill like 20 pigs, hang them all up and then go shit. Half of them are going to be rotten. Half of them are going to be half rotten. You know, that kind of thing. I'm like, no, you got to get your mind behind, understanding like your logistics and your supply part of I need, I need to feed 50 guys for two days. I don't need a 300 pound hog. I need a 40 pound hog. Cause I can span that meat out for two days for 50 guys. Um, but as far as the, the insulated tent cooler thing, my mindset behind that is, okay, let's say you do shoot three pigs or three goats. This might get you an extra four days, right? If we can drop the ambient temperature, if it's 90 degrees out and we can drop it 30 degrees in there with a little bit of airflow, I'm okay with it being 60 for a day because I've got that nice, beautiful crust on the outside. Um, I've sprinkled it with uh, black pepper to keep flies and bugs and shit off of it because black pepper works great to keep flies off. Um, I did a little experiment. I showed the guys a pile of guts covered in flies, took a handful of black pepper threw it on the guts and the flies disappeared. Only huh. like one or two flies came back. I didn't know that. That's a good, that's a good, another good tip. Yeah. Black pepper rubbing it on the meat after you kill the animal will decrease the amount of flies and stuff that'll get on it. So it was kind of that mindset to look at the zero breeze and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm really just always trying to look at what does the military need? What are they lacking? And you know, they want to buy off the shelf kind of stuff. They don't want to spend billions of dollars anymore, like developing new things through DOD because it's expensive and it never works anyway.
you know, you know that being in the oh, army. Oh yeah. Yeah. Here's, your, here's your million dollar JTLV, and sorry, it's gonna break after thirty miles. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I was a company <laughs> commander for a Bradley unit. We we actually calculated. Uh, well, I didn't. I'm dumb. But my XO took the actual the. He looked at like six months of our maintenance and how much yeah. we were spending and like the part turnover and stuff. And essentially, like, the, the, what if you extrapolated what our budget was, what we were spending over the course of uh, you know a couple of years, it would be cheaper to replace the fleet for the entire army instead of maintaining these things. You could replace it like every two to three years, just brand new Bradleys. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know, and I think that I mean, I swear that these guys write these contracts to where they're just sitting there, like. Part like they know the parts are gonna drop here, drop here, drop here, so they can just keep. Yeah, uh, they just so keep you in the cycle. Yeah, it's like going to the doctor, right? I'm gonna keep you sick. Yep. We're not gonna we're not gonna attack the problem you have. We're just gonna keep giving you pills to band aid it. Yep. We're not gonna um, you know tell you to shift your lifestyle, start eating some more meat and some more game meat and. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I less mean, artificial shit. I'm 50 years old and I do 23 hour fasts, you know, and I I try. I'll eat garbage every once in a while, but I went from 230 to 189, you know, just fasting and changing my diet and not going to the freaking doctor. Yeah. The doctor can't do anything. Like I have Lyme's disease. He's like, what do you want me to do about it? And I'm like, I don't know. You're the freaking doctor. What do I do about this? <laughs> have you, do you change, have you changed your diet fairly significantly? Is that why you're fasting because of the Lyme's disease? Yeah. Yeah. It's very, and it could just be because I'm a little bit older or whatever, but it's very debilitating, like joint pain, mm -hmm. the brain fog. Like I picked my truck up today and I was talking about my, my old truck and I just went completely blank. And the dealer, the, you know, the car dealer's like, Hey, Jason, <laughs> I'm like, Whoa, wait, what? Oh, what was I talking about? But the brain fog, like, you know, you hear about it and you're like, yeah, whatever brain fog. Just don't be a dumbass. Like you're just an idiot. No, it's real. Like you, I lose my train of thought in the middle of thoughts. Um, my joints were hurting like nonstop, twenty four seven. I wasn't sleeping well. My stomach was really bad. Uh, I got a friend. Her name's uh, Carly Smith. I think she's the fairy gut mother on Instagram, and she's like a gut health specialist. So if you want to talk to somebody about gut health and the importance, like. Carly is amazing. I brought her to the CAG compound and they talked about, she talked about bone broth and stuff. They started making like gallons of bone broth every week, you know, and, and team dudes, operators are like chugging it like water because it's so good for them. They're like, Oh, I feel so much better. So it's kind of the same thing with me. I, I get more collagen back into my system and you're trying to straighten out your butt, your, uh, your gut biomes and stuff like that. My father-in-law has limes and he pretty much switched to like a carnivore, like he's probably 85% all meat. And yep. uh, it's been huge for him. I mean, it'll really get his, and like if he s splits off and like, you know, cheats for a few days, his inflammation oh. just skyrockets right back up. Oh, it's horrible. Like a couple weeks ago, I was like, oh, I can't do, I just, I was just over it. I, I knew I wasn't going to do this long term, but I was just like over it. So I ate like, garbage like i ate like a dumpster fire for a week and i couldn't sleep i couldn't think i couldn't move like it was just horrible 
And then immediately back on the 23 hour, three days later, I'm like, I feel so much like everything just started coming back. And so I really like that, like seven to 10 days of 23 hour and then just do intermittent and eating meat, right? Whether it's chicken or beef or whatever, just meat in general and organ meats, the best meat. Like I, I, it goes back to the gutless method. I don't know how people could leave the heart, the liver, the kidneys, the lungs, and the call fat behind. And the call fat, if for those who don't know, is that big web of fat around the stomach. Like that's just you can do so much with that. I've, uh, that, I've done heart and the call fat. Use the call yeah, fat wrap yeah. the heart. It's oh, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's really yeah. good. That's a. Uh, I think that's perfect because we can uh, we'll, we'll leave that for, for the next one because we definitely got to get you back on, Jason. I, okay. I want to pick your brain on some organ recipes and ways to cook it in the future because I just get my ass kicked. I re- I know how good liver is for you, and I just don't like it. So I need some I need some tips, but we'll save that for next time. We we really appreciate you know you taking the time to jump on, uh, Perry. I'll turn yeah. it over to you, man. You got any closing thoughts? Yeah, man. Uh, just that I want to I want to take one of your classes one day, Jason, and and uh learn some of these tips and tricks you've been talking about man your your wealth of knowledge so really appreciate you coming on and and sharing some of it with us yeah yeah so i'll be i'll be in north carolina i'll be at bragg here probably october oh really like open invite if you guys want to come like hell yeah my brother's down at bragg right now you're what my brother's down at bragg right now so hey it's liberty yeah, that's right. Liberty, Liberty. Sorry. I just saw it on Google Maps. They changed it the other day. I, I got the email from uh, 80. So the not this last GSB commander at 10th group, but the one prior, Colonel Rowe, he's now at 82nd. And I got the email from his guy and it says Bragg slash Liberty. Yep. And I was like, all right, I got to change my mind. Now I'm at Liberty. I don't know what Campbell's going to turn into, but whatever. Well, it's updated on Google now, so it must be official. <laughs> have to check it out. But yeah, any any time, if you guys want to do something together, you know, everybody's out here in Colorado or you want me to come down somewhere and I'll keep you in the loop too. Because um, like I said, I travel all over the country and I'll do private stuff. And if I got something sort of in your area, I'll let you know. Heck yeah. And you guys come. And I guarantee you, if I cook you liver and stuff, you will... Love it. I'm in. I, I really in. want. I really want to. I like right now. I'm just gonna like cut it into little chunks, freeze it, and swallow it whole. Because like I know I need to eat it because it's so good for me. But the only time I've, I've liked the uh, I was in Scotland last year, and I actually love haggis. So I was thinking maybe I'll just start learning how to make some haggis, and then yeah. use all the organ meat, throw it in the haggis, do like venison haggis or something like that. But yeah, I gotta play yeah. with that. I'll. I'll. I'll have you eat an organ meat and then I'll, I'll show you how to make some of the best sausage you've ever made in your life. I'm like the sa- I'm like the Abe Froman of Colorado. I'm the sausage king of Colorado. Hell yeah. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll definitely set something up then. I mean, cause that's perfect. We've got a, we've got a ton of folks on the front range here, you know, locally. So we could, we could definitely do some, a cool event and, and yeah, we can put something together. No problem. Yeah. Easy. I'm a hundred percent down, but Jason, I appreciate it. I'm glad we finally were able to, to get you on here and, and line this one out and, and we'll get you back on soon. Yeah, it was my pleasure, man. You guys are great. I love what you're doing. I'm following you around on, on the Instagram. I appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah. All right. Well, it was good talking to you. Let me know when you guys want to get together. Just hit me up. 
You can text me, email me. You have questions, don't be afraid to hit me up. Yeah, that's like, a great real quick, where's uh what's your Instagram handle? Let everybody know where to find you. Uh Jason the Butcher. That's too easy. All right, yeah. Jason. We yep. appreciate it. To all of our listeners, as always, we appreciate the hell out of you guys. Thanks so much. Yep, thank you. Later.